Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, right, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring love, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's, uh, let's pray before we begin, and uh, we'll jump right into it, okay? So if you would, just pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Beaver Baptist Church. Thankful um, for the church. Lord, thankful for um, all the people here that um, make everything go. Thankful for the men that got here so early this morning to cook and prepare for the men's breakfast. Thankful for Mr. Dan bringing the word in the men's breakfast. I'm thankful for uh, all those that are volunteering right now and volunteered today, those that get to use their gifts. Thankful for the, the worship team. Uh, staying late on Wednesday nights, getting here early to prepare. Uh, Lord, but we're thankful that we have a place to gather, and we're thankful that we have a church that loves you, and we're thankful that we get to listen to the teaching and preaching of your word. And Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to teach and preach your word. And I pray that you would speak through me, that it would be all from you and none from me, that you would be glorified in this sermon, that your name would just be lifted high, Father. And then it, it, it would prepare our hearts, that our hearts would be softened as we take the Lord's Supper after this, Lord. But we love you. Help, help, help the, the, the congregation to be receptive and help me to be able to teach with clarity and with passion in an accurate way, Father. We love you. Help us to love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yesterday, there was um, a birthday party. Seth's birthday party, and we went, and it was really fun. We played basketball, and we did a we did a adults versus boys. It was just really fun. Had a great time celebrating Seth and him being he's finally seven. And uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No. Love Seth. Thankful to celebrate him. But we played. I played against the boys, and as I was walking out. Uh, Uncle Mike Hartsfield was sitting right there, and I went over to him, and I was, I was a little tired, as you might guess. Uh, and he said, you know, I lost a few steps since the last time I saw you play. And I'm like, shoot, it's more than a few, a lot more than a few. But it jogged my memory. It made me think about there was this one time uh, when I was playing ball. I played ball all throughout uh, 
childhood up through high school. And it made me think about this one time that Uncle Mike and Aunt Deborah did come to watch me play. I always had a great support group. My parents were at every game. My, my grandparents were at every game. So I, I, I had people there all the time, and I was always thankful for that. A lot of people didn't have that. <clears throat> but I thought about this one time that Uncle Mike and Aunt Deborah came, and I don't know if y'all know, but Uncle Mike's a, he can be a little aggravating, <laughs> a little agitating. I don't know if y'all know that. He likes to agitate folks. But uh, he, he just did that to me as a kid. All, this, all the same things that he does to kids today, he did that to me. And uh, he came to this game, and I was just so, so nervous. Like, out of my mind, scared, nervous that, that Uncle Mike was there to watch me play this game. And I, I didn't know why. I was just like, oh, my goodness. It was just weighing on me. And we played the game. I don't even remember if we won or lost. I could care less. It, that didn't really matter. But after the game, I uh, went up to Uncle Mike, and uh, he said, you played a good game. Proud of you. And it just, like this weight was just like lifted off my shoulders. I was like, whew. I just really, really, really wanted his approval. I had people tell me good game every single game of my life, right? My parents, every single game. My grandparents, every single game. If I played good or not, I could play the worst game you've ever seen in your life. Man, you, son, you did good out there. I got a lot of that. I got a lot of that. You gave it your best, you know. I I lost a lot of games. But that day, I just wanted his approval. I really, really wanted his approval. And it meant a whole lot to me that I got it. And that's a natural thing. Everybody wants approval, don't they? Everyone wants to be approved. Everyone wants to be liked to some degree. Some people need it more than others, but no one wants to be disliked all the time, right? No one wants to be disapproved of. As teenagers, and the thing, it it changes how we seek that approval as we go throughout life. And some things stay the same, but sometimes it changes. As teenagers, the way that we seek that approval is by who you know, who you hang out with, who your friend group is, or what kind of clothes you wear, right? Um, As grown-ups, women, they, they, they can seek that approval through comparison to other women on beauty, on how well their husbands treat them, on so many different things on how their children do in school or how their children do in sports comparing to other kids. And then men, or it's the similar thing, men seek that approval through who they're with, maybe any knowledge they have on a particular topic, maybe in their athletic ability. But too often, we seek that approval in the wrong places. We seek to be approved not by God, but by man. We want approval. Timothy, being put in charge by Paul, is not supposed to seek the approval of man, but he is supposed to seek the approval of God and God alone. And the same should be true of us as well. And that is where we're going. That's the main point. Paul encourages Timothy to do his best to present himself as one approved by who? By God. One approved by God. Look at verse 14. I hadn't even told you to turn there. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Let's read that with me. Paul is writing this letter. 
to Timothy. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. He says, remind them of these things. Remind who of what. Paul is telling Timothy to remind these faithful men that he can trust from chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul's telling Timothy, hey, remind those men, those faithful men that you have, remind them of these things. Remind them about Christ's work. Remind them that even though Paul is bound, the gospel can't be bound. And it's not that they had forgotten. It's not that they had forgotten these things. But it's, it's the same with you and I. We start to live our lives in a way that as if Christ didn't do what he did. It's not that we actually forget that Jesus died on the cross. We know that, right? But we start to live our lives. We get in our own lane. We start to live our lives in a way that as if Jesus didn't do that. He says, remind them that suffering is worth it because we're going to win in the end. But Paul doesn't just say to remind them of these things. He says to charge them, to command them to not quarrel about words which does no good, but only results in ruining, ruining the hearer. These are just word bouts. These, these, these arguments, these fights that have no eternal value. And it reminded me of, of, of 1 Timothy 6, verse 4 and 5. He's talking about false teachers here. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. He says, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is the same type of deal. It's similar to that, that, that unhealthy craving for controversy. That's what this quarrel about words is. Have you ever been in a uh, conversation with someone and it's not going well and you just kind of start to realize everything you're saying, no matter what you're saying, someone's just coming back at you with something and you're like, it really doesn't matter what I say right here. You're, you're going to come back at me with something, right? So many people are nodding their heads. Don't look at your spouse. Don't look at your spouse. Everybody look right here. Lock on me. Lock on me. Don't nudge anybody. You know, right? You've experienced that. It's similar to that. Arguing just for the sake of arguing. And notice that the results are similar. In our text today, the, the result is ruin. It ruins the hearers. In the text there, the result is envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Right? It produces nothing good. There, ha there is no value in this, this, this quarreling about words, this arguing about things that don't matter that have no eternal value. All it is is a time waster. It takes up a lot of time, and it's pretty similar here. Look at verse 15. This is our catalyst verse. This is the verse that drives the text, the, 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 the passage today, the, the verse that drives the sermon. Look at verse 15. Paul tells Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, Rightly handling the word of truth. This verse shows us the, the first way in which Timothy is to present himself to God as one approved, and that is as a worker, rightly handling the word of truth. 
It's really important to use the word. When I say the word, this is what I mean. It's really important to use the word rightly. Really, really, really important. In fact, it can be dangerous to not use the word rightly. And I'm sure you can probably think of examples. You can think of false teachers and how they, how they use the word improperly. Maybe you've heard the story. There was a guy who needed guidance, he felt. He felt he needed guidance from the Lord. He said uh, he didn't know a whole lot. He said, all right, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this Bible. I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm going to open it up on a random page, and I'm going to go like this. And whatever it does, I'm going to do it. And that's going to be the guidance that I need from the Lord. Anybody done that? Everyone done that as a kid? Or you know somebody doing it? Yeah, of course, right? So he does it. He says, okay, I need some guidance. So I'm going to do whatever it says. He goes, right here. Uh, and it says, then Judas went and hanged himself. <laughs> He's like, well, that, that cannot be right. I must have done something wrong. Let me try it again. Let me try it again. So he does. He goes, close the back, close his eyes. Does it one more time. He says, what does it say? It says, go now and do likewise. And he's like, man, this cannot be right. There's no way that this is what the Lord wants me to do. I have messed something up, okay? And so he goes and he does it again. He finds it. And it says, what you will do, do quickly. It can be dangerous to use the word improperly. It can be dangerous to use it incorrectly if not used in its proper context, in the way that it's meant to be understood, right? It can be dangerous. And you can think of false teachers. You can think of all the ways that they use the Bible improperly, that they use it in the wrong way, taking scriptures out of context, right? Inserting themselves into the text, viewing the text from whatever lens they want to view it from. Or possibly reading the text at the beginning, and then you never hear about it for 45 minutes, right? You know, you know of that. Maybe you've seen a video of someone teaching Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be judged. And they're teaching, oh, well, you, okay, that's it. Can't judge. They got us there. Ah. But they're not teaching the truth. They're not teaching that, uh, they're trying to teach the tolerance of how sinful this world is and trying to teach that we should tolerate that and that we should never judge. But in context, Jesus is saying, he's not saying that we shouldn't judge. He's saying that we should be aware of and deal with our own sin and therefore be humbled so that we can point out someone else's sin. Or maybe you've seen someone teaching Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they're teaching, well, Christ strengthens me. I can do anything in the whole entire world. I can fly. I can run 100 miles an hour. It's not true. They're not teaching that since Paul has dealt with all these hardships, since he struggled so much, he, is, he has learned contentment that he can deal with any circumstance because God has strengthened him. They're not teaching properly. And it can be dangerous if the word is not used correctly. It's important that we correctly handle the word of truth. It's important that we teach it in context. It's important that we teach the author's intended meaning. It's important that we teach application for us today. But it's not just teaching the word also. It's, it's, it should be more than that. It should be devoting our lives to it. H.A. Ironside, he says this. 
He says, studying the Bible means more than just reading it casually. It means giving it our careful attention, comparing one scripture with another, weighing the words in every chapter and every verse. But even as we read the verses and meditate upon them, we should avail ourselves of every possible help that might open things up to us more clearly, making it the business of our lives to become more familiar with the Holy Scriptures. It's not just teaching. It should be our life. It's not just study. It is life, day in and day out. The Word is our lifeline as believers. And also, the worker shouldn't be ashamed of the work that they submit. Look at verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed Well, the workers shouldn't be ashamed of the work that they submit because why? The work should be excellent. The work should be awesome. One thing uh, pastors always ask me, ever since I started work here, he always asks me, "Uh, you earn your money this week? And sometimes I'm like, yeah, sure did. Definitely earned it this week. And there's sometimes we're like, ah, could have done a lot more. Could have earned it. He's always said uh, not to... He said, you don't want to have to go in there and take your paycheck walking in backwards, not looking somebody in the face. That's true. The work that we do should be, should be incredible. It should be done well so that we are not ashamed of it. It's important that any work that a Christian should do should be done to the absolute best of their ability. And why? It's not just because we're, we're working for man, we're working for our boss, we're working for our employer. No, but it's because we're working for God. And we want to please Him in the way that we do everything. And part of that is doing your work really, really well. Mr. Jim, when you leave a house, do you put windows in? Uh, what kind of job do you want to do? Real good job? Best you could possibly do. That's just how, that's how we ought to be, right? That's how we ought to live our lives, doing our job to the best of our ability. You're hoping that they, oh, they'll tell their neighbors, hey, hey, when you need windows, man, I got a guy. He will do it. Best window guy you could ever have, right? That should be how people should talk about us as well. Look at verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. This, this irreverent battle, babble, this godless chatter... It must be an issue that they were really dealing with because Paul mentions it several times here in this text. He mentions it several times elsewhere as well. But this it's similar to the quarreling about words, this talk about things that don't matter, this arguing about things that don't matter. It must have been a real issue. It leads people into more and more ungodliness. Paul mentions two men here, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and it says that they have swerved from the truth. These are two men who at one point were a part of the ministry there with Paul, who are now misleading others. And this, this, this false talk, this, this false teaching, it'll spread. It'll spread like a disease. My wife's in nursing school. She likes to 
uh, show me all of these uh, super nasty things that she's learning <laughs> about diseases and stuff. She said, as, as Cody read the text, she said, oh, I've seen gangrene. It's terrible. So, sure is. Sure is. This false teaching, it spreads like a disease and it corrupts the body. It, it leads and then, and then it leads to, 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 to this, this full corruption. The language here, it's vulgar on purpose to pr- provoke an image in our minds. Like a cancerous growth that destroys the body, this false teaching spreads and it destroys the body of Christ. These men were at one point recognized as Christian teachers and preachers, but they drifted away from the truth. They turned from God's word and they embraced speculation. They were saying that the resurrection hadn't happened yet. And they weren't talking about Christ's resurrection because, of course, that had happened. You couldn't deny that. But they insisted that the final resurrection of the living and the dead had already taken place spiritually for believers. They said there was no bodily resurrection to come for Christians. And, and, and teaching something false like this, it leads to, to, to upsetting the faith of some. Because their, their hearers are listening to this and they're thinking, huh, is that right? Man, I didn't know that. I didn't think that. And then it, it leads to many questions, which is what false teaching does. And not only that, but then it leads, to, leads them to question if they're really children of God or not, the listeners. Verse 19, but... But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul says all believers get a seal, a stamp of approval with two different inscriptions on it. One, the Lord knows who are his. And two, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You ever had someone... and? it's really difficult for you to determine whether they're a Christian or not. Sometimes it's hard. You have someone in mind, maybe, ah, man, I'm just not sure about them. I just can't tell. I can't get a good read. Well, the good thing is, is it's not for us to judge. And it's not for us to know. God knows. We're responsible to walk in the truth and depart from error, but the Lord knows who are His. He knows them by name. Since these men like Philetus and Hymenaeus, they had not turned away from iniquity, but they had turned to it. They had embraced it. They had embraced sin. And so they are not a part of this. They don't have the seal. Because those who call on the name of the Lord, they depart from iniquity. They depart from from sin. Those who have been saved by God's grace, they recognize who they were before living in sin, living in iniquity, and they depart from it because the Lord has changed their desires. The Lord has changed them, and they've been stamped with a seal. Verse 20 and 21, this brings us to our second way that Timothy is to present himself to God as one approved, and that's as a vessel ready for every good work. Look at verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for any good work. A large house would have buckets, jars, cups made of wood and clay that were for dishonorable use, that were used for uh, taking out garbage, taking out waste, things like that. But then, of course, they would bring out the nice stuff for dining and things of that nature. They would bring out the gold and silver for noble functions, entertaining, dining. But even a common wood bucket or clay pot becomes useful when purged and made clean. For a waste bucket to be used for a noble purpose, it would have to be vigorously scoured, cleansed, purged, but then it could be used for an honorable purpose. I think these two verses here, I think they're a call to separate from those who claim to serve God but do not honor Him with their actions. Anyone who seeks to honor the Lord cleanses himself so that he can be useful to the master of the house. And isn't that what's happened to us at one point or another? We're all clay pots, wooden buckets. We're all vessels only useful for for filthy purposes. But at one point or another, God changed our heart. And all of a sudden, we wanted to please Him. He changed our desires. And we wanted to be cleansed. And so He cleanses us. He purges us, refines us, and makes us into this new vessel used for an honorable purpose. A vessel used for being useful to the master. And that's the story of really every Christian here today. You were once filthy, used for dishonorable purposes. That's all you could do. And the Lord has made you clean. And now you can please him. You can honor him. And he's still refining us. That part is not over. He continues and continues to make us more like Him. It's progressive sanctification. The longer that we're believers, the more time that we spend with the Lord, the more He makes us more like Himself. The more He puts sin to death in our lives and and conforms us more to the image of Christ so that he or she can be ready for a good work. Verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who have called on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue these other things instead. Timothy, he's not exactly a young whippersnapper. He's not super young, but he's not exactly an old codger either. He's definitely young in the game of ministry, in the role of being a lead pastor. He is definitely young. But usually these youthful passions, uh, when, when, when described in Scripture, they're usually referring, to, uh, usually referring to sexual desires, sexual sins. But I don't think that's the case here. I think what this is referring to is Timothy being a young, younger man put in this position of power as the, the leader of the church, the pastor. And this, this, this youthful desire, I think, is being puffed up because of the position that he's been put in. And Paul is encouraging away from that. Youth is a time when natural desires dominate. It's when it's all we can think about, right? Um, But we can't let those desires have dominion over us. In fact, we have to flee them. As a kid, I always thought fleeing was 
a kind of a wimpy thing to do, I guess. I thought fleeing was a sign of weakness. I thought fleeing was a sign of, uh, of just showing that you can't do anything to fight it. But I, as I've grown, I've realized that that's not true. Fleeing really is the most responsible thing that you can do. To flee means to run away often from danger or evil. That's one definition, but it can also mean to hurry toward a place of security. But in this case, it means both. It's fleeing from the youthful desires, fleeing from the desire of being puffed up. It's, 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 it's running from those things, but it's not just running from those things. It's running towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's running towards that place of security. It's not just running away from these sinful desires, but it's running into the arms of Christ. And then as we're fleeing and as we're pursuing those things, we're running away from here, we're running here, all of a sudden you, you, you kind of have tunnel vision, right? And you're pursuing these things. But you notice there's people that come alongside you that are pursuing the same thing. And you realize, hey, maybe there's somebody I could pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with. Maybe this is somebody that has the same desires as I do. And that's the church. That's what we experience twice a week. We're all pursuing the same thing. Pursuing righteousness, faith, love. We all have that same goal. And you look up and you notice, hey, hey, there's other people doing the same thing that I'm doing. Pursuing the same things that I'm pursuing. And they come alongside us and we spur one another on. And we encourage one another to keep going as Paul is doing with Timothy here in this second letter that he's writing to him. Remember, it's the, it's the image of, of the older man finishing the race first and, and going back earlier in the race and encouraging this younger man that he's just got a little bit more to go. That's what Paul's doing with Timothy. Spurring him on, encouraging him to keep going. Verse 23 and 24. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. I'm a master procrastinator. I would challenge anyone to a procrastinating contest, but I don't think I'd ever get around to it. And... This is something that I'm aware of. Like, it's not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of that. I know that. But as I'm preparing for something, whether it be doing schoolwork, whether it be preparing for a lesson in Sunday school, whether it be preparing a sermon like today, you know what I've noticed? You know what I've found out? It's really easy to get occupied with things that don't matter. Like, really, really, really easy like way too easy. It's so easy to get, to get, get occupied, get your, get, to waste your time with things that have absolutely no value. Whatever it is. And the same is true in life. These controversies, these debates about who cares, 
They have no eternal value. They lead to nothing. They have no value whatsoever. And really, they waste a lot of time. A lot of time that we don't have. Time that we could be spending on other things, good things. This, this, this controversy, this, this attitude, uh, uh, this unhealthy craving for controversy. It's, 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 it's like the idea of someone who, who has to always be right. We shouldn't be the person that always has to be right. That shouldn't be us. Don't look at anybody or nudge anyone. Seriously. We shouldn't be those kind of people that always have to be right, that have to have the last word. That shouldn't be us. Paul also says in verse 23, excuse me, verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Yes, we must be firm and we must be forceful, but we also must be kind to everyone, even our enemies. In brief, we should be Christ-like, if you want to sum it up. But we should be kind to everyone. It also says that Timothy must be able to teach. He must be skillful in teaching, a really big concern of the pastoral epistles. This is his ability to teach. And it also says that he should, he should exhibit patience towards the opposition as well, patiently enduring evil. And this brings us to the last way that Timothy is to present himself as one approved by God. And that's as a servant that gently corrects. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Timothy is to correct his opponents. doesn't say that he's to skip over it. doesn't say that he's to roll over. But it does say that he's to correct in what way? Gently. He's to correct gently. That's interesting. Notice it doesn't say he's to correct with clever put-downs. He's to correct with making himself look really awesome and the other guy look really, really small. No. It's not by embarrassing someone. It's not by showing them up. It's by correcting them gently. It's kind of like what Paul said in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. It's not making yourself look great. It's correcting gently. And then, maybe, just maybe, they'll come to a knowledge of the truth. Maybe they'll repent and they'll believe the gospel. There's several ways I think that we can take this text, and we've kind of done some application as we're going, but I think there's lots of ways that we can apply this. Firstly, we ought to do our best to present ourselves as one approved before who? Before God, not before man. We should not seek the approval of man, but we should seek the approval of God and God alone. 
He should be the one that we seek to please. That's one way I think we can apply it. Another way, we ought to rightly handle the word of truth. The details matter. It is important that we don't misuse the word. It is important that we teach it rightly. But it's also important that we make it our life. It's important that the life, that our lives be devoted to the scriptures. So a question, just as a way of application, is that your life? Does that characterize you at all? Another way, we should seek to be vessels for honorable use, ready for every good work. Also, this progressive sanctification. The Lord does the work, but we have to be faithful and we have to be diligent. Are we seeking to become more and more like Him every day? Are we repenting and daily drawing near to God? Also, we should flee sinful desires. We should run from them. And not only should we just run from them, but we should run to these other things instead. We should run from these sinful desires and we should run towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We also shouldn't argue about words, about things that don't matter. We shouldn't be the person that always has to be right. Is that you? And also we should correct gently, not in a demeaning way, not in an arrogant or harsh way, but gently. And lastly, these loud, foolish heretics teaching these these false things that promote controversy, we're we're told that they should be corrected gently. And you're probably thinking, well, they don't really deserve to be corrected gently, right? And to that I would say, you're absolutely right. They don't deserve to be corrected gently. But neither do you. Who does? None of us. I don't think we really want to get into conversation about what we deserve. Everyone's so entitled these days. You've probably heard someone maybe this past week say, well, I think I deserve a little bit better than that. I think I deserve this. I think I deserve, I've worked here long enough. I think I deserve that promotion. Guys, What we really, really deserve is eternal separation from God. We don't deserve any of these things that we think that we're entitled to. We really deserve punishment in hell for all eternity because we've sinned against God the Father. Next time you think about this thing starts bubbling up, I think I deserve a little bit better than that. Take a few, de- take a few, a few deep breaths. We're in, uh, we're in the foster care training, and they taught us this square breathing technique, which is miraculous. And it's just breathe a few in. I don't actually know the numbers. How is it like three in three? I don't know what it is. <laughs> take a few deep breaths, and remember what you actually deserve. 
and praise the Lord that He hasn't already given it to you. Praise the Lord that He has not given us what we deserve. If that's the case, then none of us would be standing here right now. We'd all be wiped out like that. But praise the Lord, He has not given us what we deserve. He has given us grace and mercy. What we actually deserve is eternal separation from God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He sent His one and only Son to earth to live a perfect and holy life. And he died a death on the cross that he did not deserve. In our place so that we might know him and be made right with him. And maybe you've never realized that before. Maybe you've been the one saying, I deserve better than this. But maybe you're realizing that we don't deserve anything that God's given us. Cry out to him. Ask him to save you and thank him for not giving him what you deserve.